Welcome to Caring on the Go, your exclusive access to the latest news and commentary from the current issue of Caring for the Ages, the official newspaper of AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. Statements made by guests on this podcast are their own opinions and are not necessarily the positions of the society. A speaker's appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them, their views, or any entity they represent. This podcast is eligible for ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits. Details will be provided at the end of this podcast. And now here's our host of Caring on the Go, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Hello, and welcome to Caring on the Go for the October 2023 issue. I'm your host, Dr. Carl Steinberg. Carrying on the Go, a member of the AMDA on the Go podcast series, spotlights articles and stories from Caring for the Ages, the news magazine from AMDA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine. With every new issue, we welcome Caring for the Ages Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Elizabeth Gallick, to discuss some key articles. In this episode, we'll be highlighting our October 2023 issue of Caring, and we also have a special treat with Dr. Phil Sloan, the Editor-in-Chief Emeritus of AMDA's scholarly journal, JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, joining us. And as an extra special treat, Dr. Hugh Tilson. Uh, believe it or not, these two have collaborated to create a post-acute and long-term care musical, and you're going to get to hear a bit of that later. Dr. Gallick is a nurse practitioner in long-term care and community-based settings through a clinical practice within the Shepherd Pratt Health System. She's a professor at the University of Maryland School of Nursing, where she teaches in the Adult Gerontology Primary Care Nurse Practitioner Program and conducts research to improve care practices for older adults with dementia and their caregivers in long-term care. Philip David Sloan, MD, MPH, is Professor of Family Medicine and Geriatric Medicine at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where he co-directs the Program on Aging, Disability, and Long-Term Care of the Cecil G. Sheps Center for Healthcare, sorry, for Health Services Research. Phil's clinical work has included serving as a medical director of skilled nursing facility, founding medical director of a dementia unit, director of a nursing home teaching service, and attending physician and quality improvement consultant to a program of all-inclusive care for the elderly, or PACE program. By the way, when are they going to take that word elderly out? It's so uh, so ageist. Uh, Phil's research areas have included assisted living, nursing home care, infection management, and behavioral systems in persons with Alzheimer's disease. A recipient of the Pioneer Award from the Alzheimer's Association and of an Academic Leadership Award from the National Institute on Aging, Phil is a former member of the National Academy's Task Force on Nursing Home Quality and former co-editor-in-chief of JAMDA, the Journal of Post-Acute Long-Term Care Medicine. Uh, now, Dr. Hugh Tilson is an 83-year-old semi-retired preventive medicine physician. He got his MD degree from Washington University, got a doctorate in public health from Harvard, and Hugh spent 15 years in governmental public health service at the federal, state, and local levels, then 15 years in the multinational pharmaceutical industry in the field of pharmacoepidemiology, 15 years in public health academia at UNC, Indiana, and Maine. And Hugh is still consulting and volunteering in all three. And uh, also, a little side note, uh, Phil uh, married his childhood sweetheart, and that's got a little something to do with, uh, oh, the evolution of this musical that we'll be talking about later. But anyway, Beth, Phil, and Hugh, welcome to Carrying On The Go. We're happy to be here. Thank you. Great to be here again. 
I, I chime in too. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, we're going to kick off today's session talking about the lead article from page one of the October issue of Caring by Allison Villegas. Allison's a physician assistant and a member of the AMDA board of directors. Uh, also written by Paige Hector, one of our senior contributors, who's a clinical social worker, and a couple of other authors. Uh, this one's entitled Unveiling the Shadows, Understanding and Addressing Suicide in Long-Term Care. And I suspect that some of our listeners, uh, including me, uh, have experienced resident suicides within the post-acute and long-term care setting. And as with any suicide, it's traumatic to everyone involved. Uh, so uh, important topic, uh, probably one that doesn't get that much uh, that much attention. So Beth, what were your key points for our listeners from this article and what issues does it bring up for you? So fortunately, completed suicide in the post-acute and long-term care settings is relatively rare. Um, there was a study done using Virgin- data from the state of Virginia for, among adults aged 50 years of age and older in nursing homes, and they also looked at assisted livings. And the incidence was very low, 14 per 100,000 in nursing homes, and then um, around 15 um, per 100,000 in assisted livings. However, even though completed suicides are rare, suicidal behavior um, is more common in post-acute long-term care. And suicidal behavior can encompass a range of thoughts and feelings and actions that may be related to self-harm or uh, wanting to end one's own life. And it can, can it can include things such as having thoughts of suicide, making a plan, or um, engaging in a multitude of different self-destructive behaviors. So I, I think the most important thing um, out of this article is the point that not everyone who makes a comment or has a thought about suicide um, doesn't necessarily need to go to the emergency room because that tends to be the knee-jerk reaction. Um, And facility staff can implement some safety measures while consulting their on-call psychiatric or primary care providers to get some further guidance. Um, And I'm imagining some of um, the listeners may be thinking, well, it's better off to be safe than sorry. And I'm still anyone who expresses these thoughts to me, I'm going to transfer to the ER immediately. But I want you to think about how we try not to transfer individuals to the emergency room for their acute medical conditions, because the ERs we know can cause harm. by the time it, it could be something that was said that was impulsive and the resident's emotional state could stabilize before reaching the emergency room, or they may cons- reconsider their statements due to this abrupt transfer. Uh, ERs can be overwhelming and can potentially lead to further traumatization. Um, also, we know that ERs are overcrowded and there's a persistent shortage of psychiatric beds. Um, particularly for older adults. I had a patient recently who I felt really did need to go, but he wound up spending five days in the emergency room. And even though I had arranged for a psychiatric bed, they missed the window of getting him over there, even though he had been medically cleared and lost the bed. So um, there's lots of challenges with that transfer. There's suicidal risk assessments that can be done. And so I'd encourage you to read the article to learn more about that. Um, And then the article also gives different suggestions about what you would do for someone at low 
medium or high risk, high risk, obviously, you're going to be transferring um, those individuals out. But um, having um, someone one to one companion, removing hazardous items from the room, frequent checks, et cetera. And you're doing a lot of reevaluation over a, um, a, a frequent period and, and making kind of more decisions um, within that 72 hours um, to decide whether or not this is getting better or if the person does really need to go out. Yeah, that's a lot to unpack there. And I, but I think your take home message is a really good one. Just because somebody expresses some sometimes just passive suicidal ideation. Uh, you know, they get uh, put on that whole, you know, paramedic, sometimes there's law enforcement and I, it's just, uh, it's horrendous. And maybe they just wanted somebody to listen and say, you know, I'm sorry that, that uh, you're having a rough go and, you know, what can we do to make it better and that sort of thing. Um, so on a somewhat related topic there, I think now 11 states where medical aid in dying is a legal option and probably more to follow suit soon. So, you know, for people who have a terminal condition and make a decision to avail themselves of this option, it's explicitly not considered a suicide. You know, the manner of death gets certified as natural causes. I know very few nursing homes that have been willing to allow this in their buildings, in part because of some 1997 federal legislation around funding. But I heard of a recent incident where a resident on hospice in a nursing home was planning on using this option after discharge. And the facility wanted to call APS and local law enforcement because of what they considered suicidal ideation with a plan. And clearly, this resident was contemplating a completely legal and reasonable option. And the idea of having police show up to their house, it's just, it's disturbing for so many reasons. And I think it's really important for our listeners to be able to distinguish between suicidality related to mental illness uh, versus just passive suicidal ideation, you know, related to their life circumstances versus actually contemplating a legal option to reduce suffering that will end their life. Uh, Beth, anything on that? So, uh, Carl, you and I are kind of on uh, different ends of the spectrum on this one, and mm -hmm. I appreciate that you're a strong advocate for medical aid in dying. I, I have somewhat different thoughts about it. Um, medical aid in dying is still not legal in the majority of states, and I think the one of the reasons the facility did this, um, I, and I guess it was in a state that allowed this to happen, right? Um, yeah. That it it wasn't kind of discussed. The staff were uncomfortable, and there's ethical issues not only for the patients but also for the providers. And I don't know. I come come at this from a different angle. So for patients who are terminally ill, provision of really good palliative care in my opinion, may be a better option. I, I also have some concerns about a slippery soap slope where older adults might feel pressured to um, engage in this, to protect finances for a family. They don't want to be a burden. And I, I just think um, it, it's, a, it's a challenge. Um, but, you know, it's, it's good to, to have different opinions about this. And, um, you know, I certainly respect yours. Yes, and I, I respect yours too. But I, I I find it really disconcerting to think that uh, just because a nursing home staff uh, is uncomfortable that somebody is going to go home and do something totally legal off their premises, that they're going to disrupt that person's autonomy and and their sort of self respect and dignity by bringing in cops and stuff like that. That's uh, but anyway, that's way outside what we're talking about here today. So. Well, well, let me just add this one thing. Um, 
the most important thing is to actually have a, a thorough assessment so that you understand what this is and communicate that to the staff. So if something like this is going to happen, it needs and it's going to involve that community. They they need to be aware that everything that was was done um, to make sure that a mistake wasn't being made happened. Yeah, I, I think that that was what was really at the root of all this. And I think what all was said and done, uh, um, probably everybody had a better understanding of it. But um, anyway, I think uh, next we're going to go ahead and talk to our guests, Drs. Phil Sloan and Hugh Tilson, about what we've all been waiting for. And this is managing editor Tess Bird's article from page 13 of the October issue entitled, What If We Wrote a Musical? Yes, listeners, you heard that right, and you're in for a treat. So this is a really fun story, uh, uh, and uh, you know, a lot more fun than what we were just talking about. Let's say. So, um, Phil, Hugh, tell us a little bit about how this whole thing was hatched, how it evolved, and then I understand you're going to share a clip or two with us. Well, since Phil is so modest, this is Hugh. Let me start by saying it was all Phil's idea. And there we were in the corridors of the medical school. I'm in the faculty of family medicine and preventive medicine, Phil, and geriatrics. And we were actually talking about nursing home building and so forth. And uh, Phil said, do you know anybody who has some good ideas for music? I've kind of run out of good ideas. and I like to write songs to educate and amuse, particularly about old folks. I didn't actually say old folks, those were my words. Um, and so I said, sure, come on over to Carolina Meadows, the CCRC where I live. Uh, it turns out when you go into a continuing care retirement community, you know, you don't check your creativity or your profession at the door. I'm still working at the medical school. I just happened to have my address to a continuing care retirement community. So Phil came over uh, and we had a cup of coffee with about six of the most creative folks I could imagine. And here's Phil to say what happened. It was a long process. It took about 18 months, but it was really a fun process because we had a group of people who were really interested in trying to do something. Most of them hadn't written music before, hadn't really, but they were smart and they um, um, came up with lyrics. And there was one person who was a really, had never written music before, but had a lot of background. And um, gradually with Hugh's stewardship, we evolved some songs and then we evolved the plot. And then the next thing you know, we had people who were ready, who were ready to try out and sing and, we had four months of rehearsals, and um, lo and behold, um, we had three nights of performance, um, standing ovations every night, and um, a really great message about creativity and community in older age. And also just an uplifting thing for everybody who participated. Lifting is an interesting concept because, of course, I uh, incidentally, no good deed goes unpunished. I was just the recording secretary for this group. I convened a bunch of my buddies, and out of it came this arbite of 18 months, whoever thought. Uh, so I, I got rewarded by being made director of the thing, which was also fun, um, but I never directed a play. Actually, I directed my high school musical. That's not true. But I hadn't directed one since then. So a lot of lessons learned. And I wasn't the only one. There, there were over a dozen of us involved every one of us out of her or his comfort zone, uh, learning new things, 
among other things, it's fascinating. Uh, I don't know if there's another good example of one of these kinds of, of projects where everything was original. The songs were all original. Uh, and uh, this, Phil had done some, some, a lot of songwriting. But but our other songwriter, uh, an extraordinary guy named Scott Schillen, uh, had done a lot of music administration. He'd never written in fact, at one of at one of our meetings, at one of our meetings, he said, "You know, I've spent my whole life playing somebody else's music. Maybe I ought to write some myself." And he ended up writing eight great original songs. A bunch of us got pressed into do, uh, service as lyricists. I was one of them. Just wrote some silly poems or lyrics or uh, limericks or whatever. And darn if they didn't sort of mesh into songs about aging. And then at one of our meetings, we said, "Well, you know, actually, if you strung these together in the right sequence, they tell a story." And they told a story about the experience in the first year of moving into some kind of aging service, in our case, continuing care, um, from making the decision to move and how hard it is to move. Poor old Max was moving in from the community, and he actually sings a song that says, I'm not ready to move, uh, to his wife, who says, oh, Max, just relax. It's time. Um, it's really great. And Phil comes in and sings a song saying the older you get, the slower you go, uh, and persuades Max that it's time for him to decide. And then we all move in, and we have this experience of moving in and recognizing each other's frailty, fragility, vulnerability, and inherent decency. So the community sort of folds around each of us with our own challenges in aging until at the end, the last song says, well, as long as we're together... It'll all be all right. Wait, wait, you're you're spoiling it for people that want to see oh, it. Oh no, there's more. <laughs> oh, okay, good. All right. Well, don't let's keep some of it, you know, spoiler, uh, you know. <laughs> spoiler either. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it was really an amazing synergy. And it sounds like uh, old dogs can indeed uh learn new tricks. So I uh, maybe uh, oh, by the way, what's the name of the musical? The name of the musical, uh as as you might have guessed, it's all about moving. We're moving in, we're moving uh moving on we're moving out so we uh, shortened it to moving i like it apostrophe a freshman year a freshman year in a retirement community nice well so maybe we should go ahead and uh, i don't know if you want to just play the clips or if you want to give a little intro or ho however you want to do it but let's uh, share those uh, uh with our listeners i'll give a brief intro but beforehand the one thing i wanted to say is there's just so many musicals about youth, but there really is nothing there that is serious about the aging experience when there's so many things happening that people have to deal with and so on. So we felt like we really had something, um, and I'd like to believe that's true. Yeah, before Bill starts his, his soundbite, there's actually a line in one of the songs saying, it can't be too body or lacking in taste. And the other person in the duet says, but what if it isn't reality-based? And so we tried to strike just the right balance between chuckles and a few tears. So the first song I'm going to play is called I'm Just a Little Worried About Eddie. I won't play the whole thing, but I'm going to play the first minute. And then we'll talk just a minute about kind of what it says. And hopefully you'll be able to hear this. I'm just a little worried about just little things I notice every day. He can get into a mood, even act a little rude. And that is not the any that I knew. I'm just a bit concerned. 
that boy like his hat, his glasses, his color, and his keys. So glad to take a look. Make some sets of our checkbook. And my fears were realized by what I thought. And that's where I'll leave it off. Um, uh-oh. No, no, no spoilers there, Phil. <laughs> Just the right place to stop. What happened to them, do you suppose? I see the show to know that. You know, early cognitive, you know, cognitive changes are really on the mind of folks. And so this, this hit a lot of people. And then it goes on to talk about taking over for some of his things. And I won't go into all of it because we have another one to share. Before you go on to the next one, though, let me just say, I, I also wrote the script, so in case you missed that point. Um, and I had to redeem Eddie. So, because we all live with, with people with early dementia, early cognitive impairment, we all have forgetfulness of aging. And so, my job was to cast Eddie not as some sort of fool that we were going to put off into a cognitive care unit, but as a lively living guy who's still capable of living the full life in the continuing care community, despite the fact that he can't balance his checkbook. Right, right. That's uh, that's a phase people go through on along their trajectory. And uh, yeah, thank you for that. All right, what's next? This is called The Rhythm of Our Lives, and you wrote the lyrics, and Scott Sillen wrote the uh, music. Um, we're going to play the first minute, and then you can talk a bit about what goes beyond that. Every year we say goodbye to 50 friends or so. Every year we know it's so that 50 more will go. We'll light a candle, ring a bell, tell the tales we love to tell, and put our flowers standing tall as in clear voice their names recall. We'll sing a song of sweet farewell, we'll say a word or two. Close our eyes and feel the swell of tears We'll shed a few <laughs> So you don't know, I'm a public health guy and uh, so uh, I moved into this continuing care community. I'm also a singer. So I sang in an annual memorial service and realized in the first one that I you know, knew a couple of people whose names were being read out to celebrate their life on the first Saturday of November uh, every year. And there were 50 others on that list. And the demographer in me realized, of course, that this is a steady state community. Every year, 50 move on, and every year, 50 new come. And you have to look at it that way. It's not just saying goodbye, uh, although that's bittersweet. It's also recognizing that in this community, you have continuity of contact and of challenge and of opportunity, opportunity to serve, opportunity to share what you've learned as you move on through the continuum as well. So the next verse uh, says, uh, but every year uh, I raise my eyes and say hello to 50 more. And then the third verse says, this we know, we come and go. 
It is the rhythm of our lives. At least that's the way a demographer, public health doc, looks at life in this wonderful community. That's a good way to look at life, I think, in general. And so there's a time for all things and, uh, yeah, the, the whole circle of life. Um, yeah. Well, so uh, how can our listeners and, and Caring's readers uh, access this? Is it our YouTube of it or uh, are you plan on anything as far as dissemination? And uh, you mentioned this is, you know, there haven't been a lot of uh, musicals on this topic. Do you think this will be the first of many? No, we have No good deed goes unpunished, Phil. So are you going to write the next one? I've already got it started if you're ready. Equal, right? <laughs> moving to. Moving to. Moving. It's moving to, moving on, moving through. We're going to do it. There's no question, Phil. We uh, have a decent video now. Um, we have to put it online, and um, it's just a matter of doing it. It, it is. The video, it, we've, we've actually spent six months being sure that the video meets video standards, getting uh, particularly some audio enhancements because there were some problems with the recording of the show. Even though we recorded all three shows, they needed an awful lot of cutting and dicing. And so we actually had a superb graduate student now uh, graduated from UNC and in the world of work, working with us, our rapporteur. Uh, and she edited it for us this summer and it's now out and ready. So we have to get it ready and it'll be on the web. Um, we're having, oh, uh, of course, you can imagine, we had so much fun, we're going to do it again. Uh, so we're going to put the show on again. Who knows what enhancements there will be to the show in the next edition. Um, and then finally, Phil uh, and Katie and I uh, have been working on a documentary of the show, uh, taking snippets like the ones you just heard uh, and the other from the other 13 or 12 songs. I mean, there are 14 really nice original songs, so I didn't write them so I could brag about them, and some lyrics, some of which are good. Maybe not the ones I wrote, uh, but they're worth listening to because they're all original, which makes it fun. So we'll find a way to make that into a learning documentary as well about what it takes to keep creative juice, juices going and energy going. I mean, we're all octogenarians, for most of us are, and it's a lot of work to put on a musical. Uh, and so people had to come in and get ramped up every Monday in rehearsal and in between for voice rehearsals. And uh, that takes a lot of work, too. We're doing it again. So watch this space for what the deliverables really will be. But at very least, I hope your audience stays in touch because we will be making this available. I mean, I think it's the sort of thing which people might enjoy listening to and learning from. And with any luck, even performing on their own stages in their own communities. I mean, this, is, this one's a winner. Yeah, thank you so much. I, I mean, I'm, I'm really impressed with it. I think it's an amazing oeuvre that you all put together to and and uh i just i hope other communities and other creative people uh will catch wind of it and to get their own creative juices flowing uh and beth i'm sure we'll be covering you know we'll be following up on this story right absolutely and until the um video and audio is available online you can read the lovely piece that uh, Tess pulled together with interviewing Phil and Hugh. Um, I, I really enjoyed it and um, emailed her when we were doing the editing saying that um, it it was uplifting. I, I heard that statement in the beginning and I, I would agree. Beth and Carl, can I end this conversation with a direct quote from the script? Please. Would you mind? Um, my, my wife, Judy, and I have lived here now 10 years. We, I'm in preventive medicine. I believe in living forward. We moved in here when we were 72 uh, and have lived a wonderful, rich life here. And one of the most memorable characters, I won't shout out her name uh, in the, in, uh, for her own dignity. Uh, she's now moved on. Um, 
had a 100 birthday party. We celebrated it. We had to have it early because she had to get to the airport to catch a plane with her son to go to Paris as her 100th birthday present. <laughs> wow. uh, and we were just uh, having a drink and celebrating her and said, well, what's your secret to a long, happy life here at our continuing care retirement community? And she was just an amazing person. She laid back and roared and gave her usual beguiling, naughty smile and said, that one's easy. Just keep moving. <laughs> Good advice. Well, thank you, uh, Phil, Hugh. I really appreciate you making the time to come on and uh, maybe we'll have you back and uh, uh, discuss, you know, when this thing becomes available or whatever, when, when we cover it next in caring, uh, we'd love to have you back. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks both. Still, bye. Pleasure. All right. Wow. That's going to be hard to follow up, uh, Beth. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get back to this issue. So the next article we're going to discuss is from Below the Fold on page one, written by Dr. Vicki Walker, another AMDA board member and current chair of our public policy steering committee, about what we're calling a critical shortage of qualified nursing home medical directors, or really any medical directors, um, qualified or not. Uh, and this is something that the society has really been pushing for data on, including when we made our Capitol Hill visits just last month in September, uh, we've been asking Congress to fund some information gathering on this topic. Uh, so Beth, what were your thoughts on Vicki's piece? I, I really liked it. I, I thought it, you know, drew attention to a, a chronic problem. I think we need, though, some new strategies to recruit more physicians and other healthcare professionals into post-acute and long-term care, particularly those um, serving in rural or underserved areas. I, I think we need to address issues of pay, travel, loan repayment. Um, she had mentioned uh, using technology, which I think is great in some situations, but it won't kind of solve all of the problems. Um, and this kind of pushed me back to ideas about recruitment and how we get people excited about geriatrics. So one, I think we need to do a better job integrating geriatrics and post-acute and long-term care experiences into medical school curriculums. Um, we're starting to see this now a little bit in family medicine and some DO programs. And, and those are the folks that I think we're attracting to the uh, futures program at AMDA. I know that um, while there was a lot of angst about it, there was a successful strategy um, several years ago with nurse practitioners. We used to have adult nurse practitioners and geriatric nurse practitioners separated out. And what they decided to do is combine them um, because we, we were able to um, interest people in geriatrics who originally thought that they wouldn't enjoy it and turned out to like it. So I think we, we need to do more of that in medical schools. Uh, with early exposure. And then I think long-term care communities need to um, become more open and uh, friendly to students and trainees. There are several obstacles that the um, many of the PA LTC communities put up in terms of getting clinical trainees in there. And you know, I think we could um, uh, make that process a lot smoother. Yeah, yeah. And I, I know the idea of virtual medical direction was discussed in the article, and I suspect that like me and sounds like you too, uh, many of our listeners don't feel that virtual medical directors are really an ideal solution uh, because it's really hard to have a sense of what's really going on in a building uh, and to understand the culture 
without being physically present, you know, with your eyes, ears, nose, to observe the real care that's being provided. And, you know, I recently heard of a medical director who was serving as medical director in literally over 30 buildings, which I found alarming. That's just, it's disconcerting. And, um, you know, I, I understand it's rural and it's, you know, they're having a hard time finding people, but, uh, you know, if it pays 200 bucks an hour, 250 bucks an hour, it's not, it's not chump change, right? And uh, it's it's to do sort of quality work, sort of administrative work. This isn't for your clinical practice, which you can have alongside it. I, it's just it's hard to hard to believe it's that difficult to find people that are willing to to serve this population. Uh, but anyway, one thing this piece didn't mention that you just hinted at is the notion of having maybe a designee in the building, especially for rural facilities that can't find a qualified in-person medical director, and that could be an advanced practice practitioner, right? So I assume you would support that, right, Beth? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think while we're seeing less interest um, or static interest in terms of physicians entering post-acute and long-term care, we're seeing um, NPs and PAs having increasing interest and more are um ending up practicing in post-acute and long-term care settings than in the past. I think we need to understand why. Um, and I also think we need to foster, you know, shared leadership um, among physicians and advanced practice providers. Um, so I do think there's a place um, in rural areas, places that lack medical directors, but also in other places where um, maybe the role will be a little different, where there is a physician who's a medical director, but perhaps an advanced practice provider could really take the lead in terms of uh, quality improvement in the facility. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunities. We just need to be open to them. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the reality in some facilities is, you know, the, the medical director is not hired because of their commitment to geriatrics or their, you know, their knowledge base or any of that kind of thing. Uh, there are other reasons that uh, sometimes people get hired. And um, I, I think any reasonable person would rather have uh, an engaged, knowledgeable nurse practitioner or PA or what have you than uh, at least have that person in the building as a associate medical director or whatever you want to call it, the mm -hmm. designee, um, than that disengaged, non-knowledgeable medical director who maybe is a retired pediatrician or, or whatever. Anyway. Um, Might I say, <laughs> I would love to see the core curriculum opened up um, just for learning purposes for nurse practitioners and uh, PAs. All right. Well, hopefully some board members. <laughs> I, I mean, kind of like, yeah, kind of what they did for the, uh, the competencies, right? Um, mm -hmm which were initially only for physicians, we're certainly uh, broadening things in that, in that uh, sort of arena. So This episode will return after this special message. Join AMDA on November 17th, 2023 for a brand new virtual symposium, Finding Your Value in Evolving Payment Models. Speakers will tackle issues such as defining value-based reimbursement models, evolution and trends of traditional CPD coding, impact of diagnosis coding and documentation on PDPM and value-based models ICD-10HCC scoring, value-based medicine reimbursement perspective, the ground view, ask the experts, where are your opportunities in value-based reimbursement? Visit paltc.org for details and to register.
And now back to our program. Anyway, thanks. Well, so next we're going to talk about your Caring Collaborative column on page two of this issue. And this is called Recurrent Falls in Post-Acute and Long-Term Care When the Usual Fall Prevention Strategies Are Not Enough. And I suspect for a great majority of our listeners who work in post-acute and long-term care settings, this topic is going to be of great relevance since falls can be so devastating in so many ways and, you know, the, the medical, legal, uh, liability, regulatory, uh, all that. So, Beth, can you please talk about what motivated you to write this and what you learned uh, when you did write this column? Sure. So um, my research interest has been in optimizing function and physical activity among older adults with dementia living in any kind of post-acute long-term care setting. And um in one of the studies, we did find that um, despite what people think, that if you let individuals with dementia walk and with someone or on their own, that they're actually less likely to fall. Um, other people would be concerned that, um, okay, well, if you're going to let them walk um, on their own, um, they're going to fall more. And it, what we see is that there's either fewer falls or there's no difference between the groups. Right. And what I see over and over again, which I think is just, it, it's hard to witness, is uh, when people are falling repeatedly, it results in physical activity restrictions functional decline, and then individuals have an increased fear of falling. And all of these things are associated with decreased quality of life. Yeah, that whole um, cycle. Yeah. Just a bad cycle. And so uh, a couple things to mention, and you can read the article for more tips, but um, about 50% of um, recurrent falls happen because of impaired balance during weight transfer. And a group of investigators did a, a study that included people with pretty significant dementia, where they did a sidestepping exercise intervention, hmm. and they compared it to receiving physical therapy. And both groups had improvement that were about the same. And this is something that's, you know, probably a little easier to implement and a little cheaper than uh, necessarily using the uh, a physical therapy after every fall that happens. Mm. Uh, plus, it won't they won't get um, re you know there won't be reimbursement. So um, and just getting creative, um, thinking about looking for patterns with the staff and not treating all falls as the same. Um, it, it's just better than putting residents in chairs in front of the nurses station and letting them sit there. I had a, a patient recently who was having multiple falls every night. And that was the only time. And I mm. talked with the staff and I said, and her, because she could, you know, participate in this. And we developed a, um, a proactive uh, toileting schedule at night because all of her falls were related trying to get to the bathroom. Yep. And, <laughs> since, and since then, she was like having multiple falls every day. And since mm. then, she hasn't had any. Well, now that's kind of an extreme case, but you know, I, I think we can we can get creative. And the the last point is thinking about a palliative approach to falls, particularly in people with advanced dementia, where no falls is not necessarily what you're going for, because individuals with dementia do have balance problems, and recurrent falls are kind of part of and symptomatic of the disease. But putting things in place. Um, whether that's low beds and mats on the floor, 
and trying to minimize injury um, rather than prevent all falls to still give people some um, freedom to be able to move around. Right. Yeah, you know, it's it's kind of like uh, the the whole thing. If somebody says, I pray to God that they'll take me, like what we were talking about before, some passive suicidal ideation, because in our country and especially in nursing homes, we're so risk averse and, you know, it's uh, it's all, you know, CYA. So, yeah, let's send that person to the emergency room. And here, yeah, let's let's not let people walk at all uh, because we might get sued if they fall and break a hip, which uh, which is unfortunate. And, you know, uh, the literature around alarms for fall prevention is not compelling, right? There's not good research around it. Uh, and their widespread use has thankfully fallen out of favor. I, I know they used to have facilities where everybody had an alarm for the first 72 hours. But for any of us who've worked in post-acute and long-term care for a long time, we've seen firsthand that alarms unquestionably do prevent some falls, right? Assuming someone responds properly to the alarm. So, um, you know, I think nowadays, if anything, they're probably underutilized. Uh, there are many facilities who have zero alarms where that would be a simple thing to do that, that for a slow-moving person could could unquestionably keep them from uh, from falling, uh, but then there's what you were talking about the measures that don't prevent falls but strive to prevent serious injuries like floor mats uh, that can be helpful since obviously all falls can't be prevented. And then you know more and more um, I'm seeing where uh, a sitter is or a one on one is thought to be a you know a reasonable intervention uh, and. Obviously, that's very effective, but also involves a lot of resources. Uh, just wondering your thoughts about about some of those interventions. So I'm going to focus mostly on sitters because, um, unfortunately, what happens with the sitters is people may not fall, but both the person, the staff member, or the you know person they hire from an agency typically they're sitting, and the patient or resident is sitting. And I would much rather consider having the budget used for sitters to hire or alarms or fancy equipment to use to hire more GNAs. Our uh, president of um, AMDA right now, Milta Little and her colleagues, um, when she was back in St. Louis, did a study about um, delirium rooms. And this was in the acute care setting. And they took the hospital sitter budget and used some of it to hire uh, GNAs who had long-term care experience. And they would pair a GNA with about three residents who were at high risk for falls and delirium. And they would optimize their function, make sure they had their glasses on, their hearing aids, et cetera. I also worked in a facility that identified people who were at risk for falls or behaviors and had special programming with activity staff and nursing together. Um, for those high-risk residents. So I, I think there's alternatives out there rather than just having somebody sit and stare at you. Plus, can you imagine, you know, yeah, no. what life would be like having somebody just sit and watch you and tell you? Yeah, especially if you have dementia, right? Yeah. I know. Like, who is that strange person, right? And, and uh, you, you know, sometimes when you're paranoid, uh, it's, it's because they're really after you. <laughs> yeah. And it's much better whenever somebody gets restless. I, I try to role model this in facilities. So if a resident's getting up, I go over to them and I say, okay, let's take a little walk. Often they want to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And then after, you know, that's done, we come back, sit down and, and things are fine. So getting staff to not just focus on telling people to sit down, but thinking about 
what getting up means. We go to conferences, we sit for an hour, we're ready to stand up. So yeah, why sure. why wouldn't our residents be as well? Absolutely. No, you get sore from sitting too long or lying in bed too long. Yeah. Um, Beth, you said GNA. Is that a geriatric nurse? Oh, I, yes. Sorry about that. Yes. That's our, uh, um, there's certified nursing assistants in Maryland. We have um, certified nursing assistants who've gone for additional training and they're uh, geriatric nursing assistants. I love that idea. That, mm -hmm. That's great. Yeah. Well, uh, so gosh, we've had a long podcast uh, and uh, that was so much fun with the uh, with the musical. But uh, so for this October issue, there's, as usual, so much additional great content that you put together. Uh, for me, uh, senior reporter Joanne Caldy's timely piece about hauntings and similar phenomena, ghosts in nursing homes, was uh, kind of fun. Uh, shouldn't be surprising to those who believe in those kinds of things, considering how many deaths occur under our roofs. Uh, and then we have Jerry Winokur's meditations column about our need for vigilance in protecting vulnerable elders from abuse. And by the way, uh, I saw that uh, we've added Jerry to our Caring for the Ages editorial advisory board. Uh, I think that's fantastic. So. Yeah, he's going to be our associate um, editor as uh, Paige Hector stepped down from that role. I'm so glad to hear that he said yes when you asked him to do that. Uh, yeah, we're, we're thrilled to have Jerry on board. He has great ideas and is a wonderful writer. He is. Uh, and then I also wanted to mention pharmacist Phyllis Famularo's article that examined whether appetite stimulants are a reasonable consideration in nursing homes for unintended weight loss. Uh, obviously, they are used a lot. Sometimes they're requested by consultant pharmacists and uh, yeah, so that's a good read. Uh, and for our listeners who may not have heard, uh, we lost one of AMDA's superstars over the summer, Dr. Bob Kaplan from Orlando. I loved Bob, and I've actually never met anyone who didn't. He was just a, a wonderful human being. And so please take a look at Dr. Dan Hamowitz's brief tribute to Bob Kaplan in this issue and consider making a donation to the Foundation for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care in Bob's name. There should be a link, I think, in the article. So, Dr. Gallick, before we close, do you have any final comments or wisdom to share on these or other articles that you liked from the October issue? Well, I enjoyed all the articles, but one I, I um, particularly liked was Barb Resnick's article and and some of her colleagues who are do, uh, providing a, um, a clinic in um, senior public housing. Um, so you can check that out as well. Um, they're doing a lot of great health promotion and disease prevention and um, fun stuff. And of course, she's collected some data to show the good results. Great. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for the October 2023 Carrying on the Go podcast. Under the leadership of Editor-in-Chief Dr. Elizabeth Gallick and Managing Editor Tess Bird, Caring for the Ages continues to report and reflect the outstanding work being done by AMNA, the Society for Post-Acute and Long-Term Care Medicine, and its leaders, members, and communities. So please take a look at this outstanding October issue, available as always without a paywall at www.caringfortheages.com. And please recommend and share caring with your friends and your colleagues. And I did want to mention... Uh, I want to welcome Linda Lang. She's helping us with production. She's from AMDA's education department. And to give a big thank you to Victor Adams, who's been helping with the production uh, over the last uh, year or two. So just wanted to mention that. So meanwhile, thanks again to Drs. Gallick, Sloan, and Tilson for spending your time with Caring on the Go. 
And now, until next time, I'm Dr. Carl Steinberg for Carrying On The Go, wishing you all a great autumn season. If you are a physician and interested in obtaining ABPLM pre-approved certified medical director credits for certification or recertification, visit paltc.org slash podcast. Thank you.